the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters. You have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. When Janice and I walk in our neighborhood at night in the summertime, we always use a flashlight. Not simply because there's no street lights, but because there are snakes, poisonous ones. Numerous times we have seen copperheads in our street. So we do not wander out blissfully unaware. I always take a flashlight, and we are careful to walk in the light of the flashlight. Paul is saying that is exactly how people live who expect Jesus to return at any time. They are Concerned, alert, sober, cautious, intentional to walk in the light, lest there be, they be caught unaware. And sadly, tragically, mournfully, Paul says, there are many people who are unconcerned about these critical matters of life and death. Look at verse 3. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Paul springboards off of this warning and he contrasts two ways to live, two types of people. Those walking in darkness, those walking in the light. So let's just examine those two things. The first is going to be by far the briefest I'll look at. 
the danger of the darkness. Did you feel how striking is Paul's metaphor? Those in darkness are asleep or drunk. Now, if you'd have come by my window last night at 3 a.m., I would probably have no idea that you were there. I was completely unaware because I was asleep. People who are drunk have a false sense of peace and security. So the word that probably captures this is the word clueless. People are living unaware of the danger of final judgment. Paul may be echoing here Proverbs 4.19. I've supplied it in the outline for you. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. What, what a sad, sad thing. People walking blissfully in a way that are subjecting themselves to terror and danger and peril, and they are unaware of it. Why are people this way? You have to go back to the Garden of Eden where God created Adam and Eve to live joyfully and obediently and dependently in his presence. There was this on switch in their hearts where they crave the presence of God, they relish God, and they highly esteemed walking in the light of who God was and what God said about the way life is found. The moment they sin, the switch is turned off. They died spiritually. They lost any appetite for the light of God's presence and for the light of God's ways. And we are all born. The switch is off. We have no appetite whatsoever for the light of God's glory and for the light of his ways. And so that accounts for Proverbs 14, 12, among other things. There's a way that seems right to a man, but at the end, it's, it's the way of death. Left to ourselves, we will, we will take life on our own terms. We will fashion what happiness and blessedness and meaning and safety and security is on our own terms, even though we didn't invent life. We didn't invent the nature of humanity. We had actually nothing to do with the fabric of human life. So the switch is off and we are determined. Well, it's the, it's the modern creed, right? No one can tell me what happiness is for me. That's the switch is off. And so human beings in their natural state crave intellectual and moral autonomy. So in darkness, you fail to live in light of the fact that God made the world and humanity is designed to thrive on God's terms, not our own. In darkness, you fail to see that there is a day of judgment coming. History is linear. Everything will be called to account. And in darkness, you fail to see that the reason to do anything is the glory of God. I'm going to move on to the next point. That's the danger of darkness. We could say a lot more about that. Living in the light. Paul paints a contrast. 
and he refers to you who love and follow and know Jesus as sons of light, sons of day. And what are the two words that describe your fundamental disposition towards life? You're sober and awake. Now, to be a son of light or a son of the day is a Hebrew way of thinking. Paul's a trained rabbi. He's, he thinks like a Hebrew. So to be a son of light or a son of day means you were born of it, you belong to it, and you ought to bear a striking resemblance to it. So I was born of my parents. I'm of Alan and Emily Sherritt. I was dependent on my parents for a season in my life, and in some respects, I bear a striking resemblance in some ways to my mom, in some ways to my dad. Paul's point is, what a blessing to have the light. When you walk in the light, what do you fear? Nothing. The flashlight illumines the road. We don't go out for a walk walk fearful. The light makes it safe. There's freedom And there's flourishing. God wants you to flourish. He loves you and he knows what's best for you. And best of all, beloved, when you walk in the light, you can glorify God, which is the greatest human pleasure there is. And that's probably the greatest thing wrong with my soul. I am not addicted to bringing delight to the heart of God. I'm not. Would that I were, I am not. I have a much greater addiction to bringing delight to my own soul. Sons of light, sons of day. What's the challenge? Even those who are in the light are tempted to drop the flashlight. See, when we go out for a walk, I don't shine the light up here. I don't shine the light back here. I don't shine the light over here. I shine it right in front of us where we're walking to expose any danger. Paul believes that even the most spiritual, even the best of us, even the healthy of us will be tempted to drop the light, to wander into unawaresville, or we wouldn't have this text before us. So what is it that you need to stay in the light? He shows you three things. You need sober concern. Verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. He's telling you this because of the real temptation to not be. And verse 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Usually when Paul repeats things within a compact space, He's really intentional about it. Clearly, Paul is drawing on Jesus' own words in Matthew 24, 42. Where in the context of teaching about his second coming, Jesus tells you and me this. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would, not ha- he would have stayed awake and would not let of his house be broken into. Therefore, 
you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. But I want you to catch Paul's reasoning. Look again at verse 8. Since we're of the day, let us be sober. What's his reasoning? Be who you are. That's the whole point of Paul's ethics. Be who you are. You're of the day. Be sober. You're sons of the light. Stay in the light. Be who you are. Translated, beloved, your status guarantees your participation in the second coming of Jesus. Now, we saw last week you can't possibly miss the second coming because it is audible, it's visible, it's unmistakable. Now, Paul goes on to say you can't miss the second coming because of what you are. You belong to Jesus. When he comes again, he is coming for you. You're his possession. You're his delight. You're his bride. He couldn't possibly not get the ones he loves any more than you parents leave this worship service, go down past the entrance to the nursery, and somehow leave your kids in the nursery and go home. You wouldn't do that. Christ will not lose his own. Your status guarantees it. What does your status require of you? To be sober and alert. I, I don't know if they still do this because I don't like to fly anymore, but when I used to fly, there was a thing called standby. Do they still have standby? It's a status when you, when you fly. Okay, they do. Matt, yeah, there's a pilot right there. So if you have a, a ticket for a seat, go ahead, wander the airport as long as you won't be the last one to get on the plane. No big deal. If you're on standby, you don't have a seat guaranteed. You're waiting to see who doesn't show up. And so you have to sit within earshot of the ticket counter, and they say, Mr. Sherrod, come to the ticket counter. We have a seat. You wouldn't dream of wandering away. You're alert. You're listening for your name, or you don't get the flight. So your status, your status requires something of you. Look at the two things Paul says your status requires of you. I see another pilot in the back, a retired one, waving at me now. That's Greg. He had as many safe takeoffs as he did landings. Praise Jesus, right? <laughs> yeah. Alert. Beloved, do you know what sedatives most influence you? To be alert is to be cognizant of the things that drain your attentiveness. Beloved, do you know what makes you indifferent or drowsy to the glory of God, the mercy of Christ, or the dangers of sin? Do you know that about yourself? You must know that about yourself. You must know what tempts you out of alertness. One cue, one clue, is the things most visible to us have the greatest influence on us. So the things most to be most impactful in your soul, it's invisible. The grace of God, the power of the cross, the glory of God, all the things that are to be shaping us most, they're invisible. 
And we spend so much time looking at screens. So you realize how influential what you see is on your drowsiness. I want you to think about that. What sedatives most tempt you to be unaware of the glory of God, the mercy of Christ, or the danger of sin? And then he says, be sober. What's the issue there? Well, when you're intoxicated, you're under the control of a substance. And so again, the question is, what things do you believe bring you peace and safety? Peace and safety that you will pursue at the expense of relishing the light of God. In my pastoral experience, I would sum it up as these three. That which causes people to be most intoxicated and unaware of the light of Christ. One is relationships. The things folks will do to receive affection, to be intimate, to give themselves all good things to another person, to crave companionship. I was talking to a woman one time in my office at Fort Worth Prez, and there was strife in the marriage, and she said, I would do anything to be with this man. Anything? Like stop following Jesus? Relationship? Pleasure and comfort? What was it Francis Schaeffer said was the greatest threat to the church at the end of the 20th century? Our own quest for personal peace and prosperity? I, don't, I didn't believe him at the time, but I do now. Because I realize the older I've gotten, the more things I have, the less grateful I am. I just see that about myself. The more you have, the more danger those wonderful blessings pose to your sobriety spiritually. Relationships, pleasure and comfort, and Lane prayed about it. Money. We could launch into 10 sermons and maybe cover it biblically. Proverbs says, a rich man's wealth is a high wall in his own imagination. What an image. The wealthier you are, the more impregnable you feel. The more above the law you feel. The more untouchable you feel. Wealth is really, really dangerous. And it's really, really good. It's both. But if you only live with one part of the scale, it's good. The danger part lurks to threaten you being spiritually sober. So I hope you're wondering, what will keep me alert? What will keep me sober? That's exactly what you're wondering. What's the answer? Turn on the lights. Let the light of God's word shine on your dreams, your desires, your goals, your ambitions, your plans, all your values. 
Psalm 119, the psalmist says, Your word is a light to my path, a lamp to my feet. There's the image. That's safety. Bring everything into the light of God's word. Why? Because he loves you. That word will help you make distinctions between what is good for you and bad for you. It will show you where it is safe to walk. And beloved, given the fact that the culture is trying to squeeze us into its mold, the word of God will expose to you where the culture has it wrong. Any issue in our culture where they begin to to posit values, virtues, that aren't based on biblical presuppositions are likely wrong. You don't know that till you apply a biblical worldview to everything in your life. So there's just constant warfare, beloved. It's constant. It never stops. It's constant warfare with the world, the devil, and the flesh. And, and so I'm thinking that Paul goes to verse 8 because he knows how much we need fortification. Look at verse 8. We're in this constant warfare, and he says, but since we belong to the day, what is that? Your status, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, what's that? It's what's required of your status. And then he says this, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Breastplates and helmets are protection. They fortify you. They guard you. They defend you. And boy, that's, that's, go talk about that over coffee with each other. How is it that faith, hope, and love protect you in your fight with the world, the devil, and the flesh. I don't have time to unpack it. Let me move on to the, and these next two points will be much shorter. We're answering the question, what do you need to stay in the light? Sober concern. Secondly, salvation confidence. Uh, Paul's already shared the gospel with them in person. He's already shared the gospel with them in this letter, and he comes back to the gospel. What's up with that? Paul can never get away from the gospel. He's always reminding his readers of what Jesus has done for them. Why? Like you, they probably had a tender conscience. And the more you grow in Christ-likeness, the more aware you are of how unlike Christ you are. Spiritual growth is a trajectory of discovering how deep pride runs in your soul, how difficult it is to be humble, how tenacious the, 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 the propensity in your heart to self-sufficiency, self-promotion, self-satisfaction is. The more you grow in grace, the more awful you see that you are, right? That's why our friend Jack Miller used to say, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you know. And so this can bring despair. This can bring fear. I am not the person God redeemed me to be. And so where do you look for assurance, for confidence, for joy? Paul says, return to the basics. Verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that though we awake or asleep, we might live together with him. 
Paul's telling them what they already know. He's reminding them of the facts. What's the fact? God has not destined you for wrath. You've become a believer in Jesus Christ. God started a process. He brought you to faith. He opened your eyes. He gave you a new heart. He created in you a desire for him. God did this. He destined that. And the purpose was not that you'd experience wrath, but that he would give you to his son. Your personal history and earth history ultimately is about the father giving his son a family. And nothing is going to stand in the way of God doing that. Nothing. I mean, don't you know you would never be a follower of Christ if left to yourself? I wouldn't. God did this. If he started it, he's going to finish it. So, beloved, would you delete from your thinking, delete any notion that God doesn't want you? And you're tempted to think that when you struggle with sin. You're tempted to think that when you fail. You're tempted to think that when you do foolish things. You're tempted to think God doesn't want you. Delete, delete, delete. What's the proof he wants you? Jesus died for us. It's the cross. We never stray far from the cross. What makes life safe, healthy, vital, full of joy, confident as that light of God's word shines down on your path in the middle of it is the cross. What, beloved, is greater than your sin? The cross. Where do you find satisfactory substitution for your unworthiness? The cross. Where do you look to hope that God will complete you accept, completely accept you? The cross. Where do you find peace with God? The cross. What is the end of the fear of condemnation? The cross. How can you trust God really cleanses your soul when you confess your sins? The cross. What can silence the accuser? The cross. What can hush the Lord's loud demands? You tell me. God forbid that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. This is why Paul in his ministry said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he brings him back to the cross. That's the source of your salvation confidence. And then very briefly, and I'm going to say more about one another in next week's sermon. He, he says, what do you need to stay in the light? You need sober concern, salvation confidence, and strengthening comforts. Look at verse 11. It's the second time he tells them to encourage one another. He did it at the end of four. Now he comes right back to it. Therefore, encourage one another, build up one another, just as you also are doing. Why do the Thessalonians need encouragement and comfort? Because their circumstances are extremely trying. They're being persecuted by the sons of darkness. Their loved ones have died. The love of their life, Jesus Christ, is out of sight. And their dear friend Paul has been hindered from visiting them. Paul can feel them wilting under the weight of these trials. And what is one of God's remedies for that wilting? It's the person sitting next to you. It's the person in your small group. It's the person on the ministry team. It's one another. And he gives this beautiful couplet encourage build up one another those things require what 
constant questions. What does my brother or sister need right now that will encourage them? What does my brother or sister need now that will build them up into the image of Jesus? Gospel-produced love gets your eyes off yourself, onto the needs of others, and you're constantly wondering, what resources has Jesus given me that I can give them? Time, listening, wisdom, money, space, whatever it is. And when you are generous in your encouraging and building up of one another, again, I'll say a lot more next week, you reveal how graciously generous Jesus is with you. That's light. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for your love for them. You have not destined them for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. What good news, what hope, what joy. And we would simply say, Lord Jesus, make yourself known to us in the light of your word that we might walk before you and enjoy you and love one another and bring glory to your holy name. Amen.